0: Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Butts and Guts. I am your host, Scott Steele, a chairman of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm very pleased to have another member of my department here, Dr. David Liska. David's one of our staff colorectal surgeons, and David's also one of the greatest basic science researchers that I know in addition to be a very active, busy clinical surgeon. David, welcome to Butts and Guts.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So give our listeners a little bit of a background about yourself. Where were you born? Where did you train? And how did it come to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic?
1: So I'm originally from Vienna, Austria, and came to the States when I was about 20 years old. Initially started off in Baltimore, then Connecticut, then New York, where I did my training at Cornell, and then came to the Cleveland Clinic for my fellowship and stayed ever since.
0: Did you ever think that you were going to stay here at Cleveland?
1: No, I didn't even know where Cleveland was on the map before I came here. (laughs)
0: That's a long way. David, we're going to talk a little bit about anal fistulas. As a colorectal surgeon myself, I know that this isn't something we talk a whole lot about, you know, about our bottoms. But... What's an anal fistula and what's its relationship in terms of abscess and fistula? All this terminology gets a little bit scary.
1: Right, that's exactly right. So you can't really think of anal fistulas without talking about anal abscesses because most anal fistulas come from an anal abscess. And anal abscesses are very common. We don't really know how common they are because as you said, people are a little bit embarrassed to talk about that. And about 100,000 people a year will have some sort of infection around the anus. So it's quite common and it's probably much higher than that. And it's important to realize that it's not something to be embarrassed about. People thought at some point that it was related to poor hygiene which is not the case at all. Um, It's related to cryptoglandular disease is the fancy name for it and what that means is that everybody has in their anus has glands and crypts and these glands are there to produce mucus which is important for our anus to function properly and sometimes these glands can get plugged or backed up. And when that happens you can develop an infection and that infection can then manifest itself as an abscess. An abscess is a collection of pus uh, around the anus and when that bursts to the skin you start draining pus and eventually that can then form a tunnel and that tunnel that forms from the inside of the anus from the gland area in the anus to the outside on the skin that's what we call a fistula. What are the
0: symptoms of a fistula versus symptoms of an abscess.
1: So an abscess, it will present initially as pain usually and swelling around the anus. Sometimes you might have some redness, but the predominant symptom will be pain. And usually a lot of times when patients complain about pain by the anus, it will be always attributed to hemorrhoids. Because everybody knows about hemorrhoids, so anytime anybody complains about pain around the anus, people will tell them, ah, it's probably just hemorrhoids, which is usually not the case. Usually hemorrhoids don't cause pain by the anus, and more likely it's something else. And while many things such as hemorrhoids don't need immediate attention, abscesses should be attended to in a fairly expedient manner. And An abscess is an infection, and you need to get rid of the infection. And like I said, the symptoms of an infection will be pain, sometimes fevers, not always redness swelling around the anus and then when it starts draining then you'll notice some pus or bloody type material coming out of the skin around the anus and that's what an abscess is a fistula on the other hand usually will start after an abscess was there and then was drained or drained on its own and a fistula will manifest itself as drainage ongoing drainage from an opening near the anus but it can also manifest itself as recurrent abscesses so you'll have an abscess that will drain and then Several weeks or months later, you'll have another abscess on that same spot, and that's due to that fistula being there, the tunnel being there, that keeps forming an abscess and then partially closing itself and then draining again.
0: So, David, if you had an abscess and a surgeon drained your abscess, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you got this fistula thing, did the
1: surgeon screw up? No, no, not at all. That's exactly the right thing to do. When you have an abscess, it needs to be drained. And usually, at the time of the initial drainage of an abscess, most of the times, you won't be able to find a fistula, even if there is a fistula already there. But about almost 50% of patients who have abscess drained will down the road develop a fistula.
0: So let's talk a little bit about this kind of this sneaky area of our body, one that we don't talk a whole lot about, because I think it's pertinent to really understanding abscesses, fistulas, stuff like that. I'm going to give you a few terms out there that I want you to explain to our audience. First of all, you mentioned a little bit before about the duct work in there, the, the glands that make mucus and they go down the crypts, which are essentially the plumbing like in our houses. If you're trying to get water to a different area, we get mucus to a different area. What's a sphincter? What's an internal sphincter, an external sphincter? What is this dentate line? And what is the anal verge and What is the perianal skin? And how do all these things in terms of both abscesses and fistula come into play to understand exactly what's going on with a patient's human body?
1: Great. Those are great questions. And that all gets down to the anatomy of the anus and the anal canal. Looking at the anus from the outside, the first thing you see will be the skin around the anus, and that's the perianal skin. Then the actual opening of the anus, just right where the anus starts when looking in from the outside, that's the verge, the anal verge. And then if you were to imagine looking into the anus, then from the inside, there's an area called the dentate line. And that's the area where on a cellular level, the cells change from a more skin-like cell to a more colon or rectum type cell and that's the dentate line that we as surgeons know where it is and look for because it tells us where the anatomy of the rectum begins and the anatomy of the anus ends and it's at that dentate line where these glands live and at the bottom of these crypts that we spoke about and the glands open into the anus at the level of the dentate line.
0: So then we have these sphincter muscles and I know that a lot of times that patients will throw around terms and say well you have a Intrasphincteric or a trans-sphincteric or a high sphincteric or extra sphincteric, super sphincteric, and we use these terms, but what are they and how do those muscles correlate a little bit down the road? And we'll focus on treatment a little bit, but how does that all meld together in terms of how they're treated?
1: In terms of treatment, the ultimate goal of treatment of a fistula is to get rid of the fistula, eradicate the fistula, while maintaining continence. And continence means that the anus is intact and you don't lose stool by accident. The sphincter muscles, their primary role is to help us maintain continence. And there's two sphincters that make the sphincter complex around the anus. There's the external sphincter and the internal sphincter. And they both run around the anus. And they have different roles in terms of the function of the anus, of allowing us to maintain continence, but also allowing us to evacuate stool from the anus. And it's a very complex physiologic mechanism of how people maintain continence. And any injury to the sphincter or to the nerves that run to these sphincter muscles can have implications in terms of continence, which is important when we think about treatments of fistulas. And fistulas are these tunnels that go from the glands of the anus to the skin and They can have different relationships to the muscles. They can run through and through both muscles or in between the two muscles or up above and that's where these different terms that you mentioned come about in terms of intersphincteric or transphincteric or suprasphincteric or extra sphincteric, that's all describing the tunnel, the track the tunnel takes, in terms of getting from the outside to the inside, where it runs along these muscles.
0: Yeah, just picture a wall, and depending on what level of the wall it goes through, does it going through the bottom of the wall or the mid wall or the high wall, depending on where that is, and if they go through only one or both muscles, that's kind of how we terminology those fistulas. So, I'm a patient out there and I've had an abscess, or I feel something coming on, and I'm gonna go into the doctor's office, what can you expect in two different settings? Number one, if you have an abscess, and number two, if you have this kind of recurring drainage that occurs, and now you got that opening that's draining in there. What can a patient expect to have in a colorectal surgeon's office?
1: First of all, it's important to make a distinction in a colorectal surgeon's office, because a lot of time when patients go to a non-colorectal surgeon or any doctor who's not familiar with disease around the anus, like I said, sometimes they'll be just told they have an a hemorrhoid and often that's not the case. Also when a patient goes to the emergency room with pain around the anus, very often I see patients are being told that it's a hemorrhoid because not everybody is an expert on diseases that can happen around the anus. But a colorectal surgeon will usually recognize an abscess when it's there. In most cases it can be seen from the outside and it will be seen as an area of swelling that's very tender and sometimes red And sometimes they might even have a little bit of pus coming out. Generally, like I said before, the main goal when you have an abscess is to get the infection drained. And what that involves, if it's not already draining on its own, will usually involve a procedure that can be done in the office, which entails draining the abscess. And it usually involves numbing the skin and then making an opening in the skin right overlying the abscess and allowing the pus to drain. And sometimes we will place a drain to allow it to continue to drain to make sure that all the pus comes out. And that's really the main treatment for an abscess. Sometimes in rare situations, you can't really see the abscess. And if you have a high suspicion that there is an abscess there, we might get some imaging be it an ultrasound or an MRI usually, to figure out if there's an abscess that's hiding between those sphincter muscles. And either way, if there is an abscess there, it still needs to get drained. And sometimes if the abscess is really big or the patient is a sick patient, the drainage can't be done in the office setting and we will have to go to the operating room to be drained under anesthesia. Now, so that was the abscess. Now, in terms of the Fischler, so that's usually will be a patient who had an abscess that either drained on its own or was drained by a doctor before, and now will come back saying that I have this abscess, it keeps coming back, it keeps draining on its own. I will always have pain for a few days until it pops on its own. And then usually when the patient comes to my office, I will examine him and I'll see that there is an opening on the outside of the anus. Sometimes you can get a sense of where that fistula is heading and it's usually heading towards the anus but there's not much that you can do in the office setting in those situations. And there's not much that needs to be done emergently because the abscess has already been drained. If it's a fairly simple appearing fish, I will usually take them to the operating room for an examination on the anesthesia. And the main goal of that exam is to figure out where the opening on the inside of the anus is and to see the relationship of the tract to the sphincter muscles.
0: Okay, a couple of things that you mentioned there I wanna highlight. So is the pathology on the outside or is it on the inside? Great
1: point. So the pathology is on the inside. The pathology are the glands where the abscess originated, but the manifestation is on the outside, because we don't really see what's happening on the inside, but we see the drainage coming out on the outside of the skin. But the pathology comes from the inside, but then the tract going to the outside, the tunnel going from the inside to the outside is inflamed and that can... Be a source of pain too.
0: And then you mentioned a couple of the tests that patients might get, whether it be a CT scan or an MRI or a a ultrasound. Does everybody need
1: those? No, no, not at all. Most simple fistulas won't need any imaging and just can be evaluated during an examination on the anesthesia. But sometimes more complicated fistulas, fistulas that have been treated and came back again, or patients with Crohn's disease who have more complicated fistulas, or if it's a fistula that's very far away from the anus, those are the ones that make me think there might be something there that we can't easily appreciate it with an examination I might get usually an MRI better than a CT scan.
0: So you've diagnosed your fistula or you've diagnosed that there is one present and you need to go to the operating room to see kind of what level it is and how much muscle it involves. Tell me about what happens in the operating room and what are some of the treatment options, both in acute setting and then in a longer term for patients with anal rectal fistulas. We'll focus on the fistulas.
1: So as I said, the main goal of treating fistulas is to get rid of the fistula tract while maintaining continence. meaning we want to get rid of the fistula tract without causing any significant injury to the sphincter mechanism that could lead to incontinence. The first step in the operating room is once the patient is asleep and comfortable will be to assess the anus and assess where the opening on the outside is, which usually is pretty easy to find. And then we try to find the corresponding opening on the inside. And sometimes that's very easy and sometimes it's more complicated, especially fistulas that have been there for a long time or that had previous operations. Sometimes the tunnel is not a straight line but can go in sort of a torturous path until it goes to the inside of the anus. And we have different tips and tricks that we can use in the operating room to find the internal opening. But once the internal opening is found, we usually guide a probe, which is just a little thin straw, essentially, that we guide from the outside to the inside, and then we can assess exactly how much muscle is overlying the fistula tract. And that's when the treatment decision begins, if this can be treated in the first setting or if it's going to require several further operations. And that all depends on how much muscle is overlying that fistula tract. And if it's a very small amount of muscle or sometimes there's even no muscle at all involved, then the best and simplest treatment is a fistulotomy. And what that means is that we unroof the tunnel so if you imagine if you're driving through a tunnel through a mountain it would be just like we have those in austria it would be just getting rid of the roof of that tunnel and then what happens is that that wound that's created by opening it up it fills in from the bottom up and the fistula tract is eradicated
0: so david let's focus on this fistulotomy right now Otomy means to cut and you're going to cut the fistula open are there guidelines that you go to determine who would have a fistulotomy in their best interest? And how often is a fistulotomy successful? And last question, what are the downsides to a fistulotomy?
1: The fistulotomy is, of all treatments for fistulas, is the most successful in the in sense that when you do a fistulotomy, probably over 90% of them will stay healed, meaning they won't come back. So it's a very successful treatment. However, it's not always applicable if there's too much sphincter muscle involved. Sometimes when there's only a very little bit of sphincter muscle involved, but the patient already has had a previous sphincter injury or has weak sphincters to begin with, such as women who have had many children or who have had episiotomies or patients with Crohn's disease where they don't heal well. Those are patients where even a small fistulotomy might be contraindicated. But in otherwise healthy people with healthy sphincter muscles who don't have Crohn's disease and it's only a very small amount or no sphincter muscle at all involved, fistulotomy is the way to go.
0: So when you do this fistulotomy, patients are left with an open wound. Do they have to be on antibiotics? Can they go in the water? Can they live their normal
1: lives? There is a bit of a wound there. Part of the wound is hidden inside the anus, and it's not as dramatic as it sounds. The wound heals relatively quickly. You don't need to be on antibiotics. You need to keep the area clean with sort of usual hygiene. Zitz baths can be helpful, a handheld shower. And there's no problem getting it wet and it will heal over time depending on how deep the tract is. But usually within several weeks, the wound is healed up.
0: Okay, so I'm not a candidate for a fistulotomy. What other tips and tricks are in your bag in order to get this to heal?
1: Right. So if you're not a candidate for a fistulotomy, that usually means that we're dealing with a transphincteric fistula or a fistula tract that goes through both sphincter muscles and involves usually more than just a third of the sphincter muscle complex. And in those patients, we try to avoid fistulotomies because we know that these can be then tricky in terms of incontinence. And when I have a patient with a more complicated fistula where I know a fistulotomy is not going to work, the first thing is I try to prepare the patient that we're going to be having a longer relationship, that there'll be probably several operations. There'll be several trips to the operating rooms, visits to my clinic, and it's going to take longer to get that fistula to heal. And there's a higher risk of it coming back too. And I try to prepare that mindset because a fistula it seems like something minor, but when it is a more complicated fistula, the treatment can be complicated too. And there are different treatments available for complicated fistulas, for fistulas that are not amenable to a simple fistulotomy. One of the treatments that has fallen out of favor more recently was a cutting seaton. We used to do that quite a bit for these complicated fish. And what that means, a seaton is essentially a drain or a piece of material that goes through the tunnel. And what a cutting setan is, is this material, usually a, a silk suture. So it's a suture material that gets put through the tunnel and then gets tightened to the point that it over time slowly cuts through the tract. And the idea was that if you can cut through this tract slowly and gradually, it has time to heal up as it's cutting through it, where you get rid of the tract without suffering any permanent damage to the sphincter muscle. But we realize now that even with cutting tons, there is some damage to the sphincter muscle and it's not the preferred treatment at this point. Some other treatments that have recently been used is, one of them is the lift procedure an older treatment that's still very good is a advancement flap. And those are the two main treatments that are probably used most commonly nowadays.
0: So before we get to those, let's talk a little bit more about a seton. So what is a seton? You mentioned about a cutting seton that it occasionally is used but really is got some very specific indications, but setons are still used
1: in general. Great. Yeah. So setons are very important in the treatment of fistulas and Nowadays, like I said, the cutting seaton is not used very commonly, and most commonly, when people talk about a seaton, nowadays it's a draining seaton. And what that draining ton is, it's usually a silastic loop made out of rubber, and it goes through the tract, and it's usually then tied to itself, so it's like a rubber band or like an earring, really, that goes through the tunnel, and its main purpose is to keep the tract open, which sounds counterintuitive because we want the tract to heal, and there we go keeping it open with a foreign material in it. But the reason for that is because, like we discussed before, fishlers, when they're left alone, they accumulate abscesses, they drain again, they accumulate abscesses, they drain again, and that process is very bad for the soft tissue there because it just leads to ongoing infection and inflammation. So, with a acetone, what we're trying to do is break that cycle by allowing anything that would accumulate in the tract to keep draining around the seton and thereby let the inflammation cool down. And then we have a more friendly tissue environment for us to treat the fistula tract and then get rid of it after the acetone has been in place. Commonly seen in patients with Crohn's disease, sometimes these acetones are left indefinitely because that would be a good treatment too.
0: Can you live your whole life with that? Can you do anything you want to with a draining Ton in
1: place? Absolutely. A draining Ton, well, it can be a bit of a nuisance. It usually does not hurt. And again, it just keeps the tract open and allows for some drainage. It's usually not a lot of drainage. It's usually just a few drops a day as the fistula dries up over time. And I have many patients with Crohn's disease, young patients who have a very active life with tons in there, and they would much rather have the Ton in than the alternative. And it doesn't really bother them much at all.
0: Yeah. And very briefly, you mentioned two other techniques, both the lift procedure as well as the endorectal advancement flap. Briefly describe what those two are about.
1: Right. So the endorectal advancement flap is a procedure that's been around for a long time and it's been tried and tested. And what that involves is basically it gets rid of the internal opening where that gland is. So you cut out the opening on the inside of the anus and then you lift up a carpet of rectal wall and cover up that opening. And that's really what the endorectal advancement flap is. And it is fairly successful with success rates being about 80%, meaning that only 20% of patients who have that procedure will have the fistula come back.
0: And then the LIFT procedure?
1: Right, so LIFT stands for ligation of the intrasphincteric fistula tract. And what that means is that we find the tract of the fistula between the two sphincter muscles and then ligate it, tie it off, and then cut out the tract between those two ties. And it's a newer procedure, I think it was originally developed in Thailand. Again, the goal is to get rid of the tract without injuring the sphincter muscle. It's successful probably in about 70 to 80% of patients. Some people, add different components to a lift procedure. Some people will do a mini flap on the inside when they do the lift procedure, but the goal is to get rid of the tract without any injury to the sphincter muscle.
0: If you were to put on, you know, your prognostic, what's some up-and-coming procedures or treatments for fistulas?
1: There was a lot of excitement initially about a plug, where it's kind of makes sense. You have a tunnel, why not just plug it up? And initially, The first few studies coming out about these plugs were very positive, but since then we've come to realize that the plug is not that great of a treatment, and it's at most sort of a 50% chance of success rate. And I've seen that insurances have actually stopped paying for it because they've seen that so many patients will fail their treatment. So the plug, while initially we had some enthusiasm about it, now most people don't think very highly of it. So that was one treatment that's sort of fallen out of favor. And then more recently, people have been talking about using stem cells, plugs coated in stem cells to treat fistula tracts. And that's an up and coming area, even for Crohn's patients that's being studied. I think we'll be enrolling patients soon in a trial uh, for stem cells uh, to treat fistula tract, And the verdict is still out, but it's definitely an exciting option. Some other treatment that people describe is a minimally invasive ablation of the fistula tract using lasers or other methods. And again, I'm not that familiar with this exact procedure, but we still need to study it to see how effective
0: it is. Yeah, very early on. And I think you said it best when you said there's some patients that you go in and it's a... Pretty straightforward Fischla, and boom, you can take care of it in one setting. In other ones, I've known my Fischla patients through the years, so wonderful review there. I'm going to end up with some quick hitters here. Favorite sport or activity?
1: Well, I'm from Austria, so I would say downhill skiing.
0: And your favorite meal?
1: Favorite meal? Pasta bolognese, spaghetti
0: bolognese. Last book that you've read?
1: Probably a textbook for colorectal surgery.
0: Fantastic. And what are the things that you like about living here in Cleveland?
1: Winters are long, but the summers are nice and pleasant. There's great museums in Cleveland, there's great orchestra in Cleveland, and great hospitals.
0: So if you could sum up, what's your take-home messages for all of our listeners out there about anal fistulas?
1: So anal fistulas are common. They're nothing to be embarrassed about. If you develop pain around your anus, if you have something that you think you might have an infection, such as fever or pain or swelling around the anus, go to your doctor. And if it's something more complicated, definitely ask to be referred to a colorectal surgeon.
0: Well, that's great advice. And to learn more and have more information about Cleveland Clinic's Digestive Disease and Surgery Institute, to include anal fistulas, please visit clevelandclinic.org digestive. That's clevelandclinic.org digestive. And to make an appointment with a Cleveland Clinic digestive specialist, please call 216-444-7000. That's 216-444-7000. David, thanks again for joining us on Butts
1: and Guts. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.
0: That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.